did you know that 50% of companies that raise Series A never raise capital again? So if I just focus on that short period of a company, which you know, could be a couple of years, there's an enormous amount of complexity. Uh, there's a lot of things that go wrong. There's a lot of things that have to go right. And so if you're not passionate about the problem that you're trying to solve and the solution that you bring into market to solve that problem, then you'll never make it to, to Series A. Hey everyone, this is Devin Miller here with another episode of The Inventive Journey. I'm your host, Devin Miller, the serial entrepreneur that's grown several startups into seven and eight figure businesses, as well as the founder and CEO of Miller IP Law, where he helps startups and small businesses with their patents and trademarks. If you ever need help with yours, just go to strategymeeting.com and grab some time with us to chat. We're always here to help. Now, today we have another great guest on the podcast, uh, Greg Collins, and there's a quick introduction to Greg. So um, first career was a soccer player, signed his first contract at 15 years old, which to me at least sounds young, but I don't know. I don't know. Maybe that's old for soccer players, but uh, sounds like a young time. Uh, gave him a lot of uh, business insight into how professional careers work um, while I was doing soccer. Also, when got an education, I think it was in computer science and a business degree and certificate in finance. Um, and then started working in a for an IT business in mid twenties. Um, that business got acquired by IBM. Worked for IBM for a period of time, then went to work for HP. Um, with HP, moved over to the U.S. for or for a while. Um, decided wanted to go do his own thing uh, for about six or seven years. At that, started an online events business. Um, sold out his stake, and then started a technology company in cybersecurity. Exited that company as well due to a divorce and then started a consulting business that uh, wanted to get, uh, come into the U.S., um, advertising uh, to a number of entrepreneurs and sitting on a few boards and uh, also helps other businesses raise money. So with that much as an introduction, welcome on the podcast, Greg. Wow. Thanks, Devin. That is a huge introduction and very honored and privileged to, to be here today and, and talking with your audience. Absolutely. So, and I just took a much longer journey condensed into 30 seconds. So let's unpack that a bit with your journey starting when you uh, signed uh, your first uh, soccer contract. So how did that go? Uh, well, I played soccer for many years uh, prior to being at the age of 15 and signing my first contract. I started when I was about seven or eight. Mom wouldn't let me play rugby or rugby league, rugby union, because she was worried my teeth would get knocked out. So soccer was considered a safer sport. So yeah, I started playing soccer, just loved it. And like now, just anything, as a complete aside of curiosity, isn't soccer the one that has the most concussions of any sport? <laughs> I think that would be NFL, wouldn't it? Am I allowed to I don't know. That? I think We're if you look at the stats, it's because people hit the, uh, the soccer ball with their head that they actually get more concussions. You know, it's interesting you mentioned that because it's something I've started looking into a little bit, a little bit lately because I got this. <laughs> no, 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 just kidding. Um, no, in all I just, was, I just was curious because it went to it's supposed to be a safe sport. That's the one that I've always heard you get the most concussions. So didn't mean to interrupt your journey. So go ahead. You know, you never know where these things are going to go. So I'm going to quickly take things off course because neuroscience and the brain are an important element. And um, of course, soccer players are heading a ball. And there, I think there needs to be a lot more science thrown at this topic because the NFL have, have looked into it and various... Um, health and medical professions and industry bodies have looked into it. And there are um, a, a serious disease from concussions. And so I think it's something that soccer needs to look into a little bit more because um, 
it is a really problematic and and serious um, health issue that I think does warrant uh, more investigation and research. No, I'm in agreement with you, and I think there's certainly a lot more work that can be done. Now, we will, now that I've completely shifted it aside, let's get back to your journey, which is, so you decided that soccer, whether or not it was actually more safe, at least in your your mom's mind, was a more safe sport. So you got into soccer, started playing there, and uh, worked your way up to getting in contract at 15. That's right. So I played and um, lived in five different countries. And uh, that being Australia, Singapore, Sweden, UK, and, and now America, um, and traveled to over 61 countries. And, and soccer has been a big part of my life, taught me a lot of uh, important philosophies, not only for you know being a professional footballer, but also in the land of business as well, um, which is a big part of our life. We spend so, many time, so much time in the workplace, in the office, working, trying to make money. And so I was really blessed and and lucky that a lot of the key philosophies around leadership, communication, teaming, um, solving problems, the psychological elements of, you know, professional football, they came with me into the world of business, whether it's working for HP, IBM, HPE, those global Fortune 50 companies, or, you know, some of the things I did a little bit later on in my late 20s and and 30s, which was co-founding and exiting two technology businesses and and now getting involved and helping out with a bunch of others. I'll jump in though, just because we just went over all of your journey. So now we've condensed it too far. So let's back up just a little bit. So you got the soccer, played that, and you signed your first contract at 15. Now, how did you transition from doing that to going or getting education and uh, going in and getting your degrees? So... You know, as a soccer player, you've got um, a lot of time on your hands when you're not training, not playing, not meeting various media or club commitments. And so there's a couple of ways you can go. One is start being an expert in golf. Another is you you can go off and get education. Or the third is you can end up in a lot of trouble. And I didn't want to do the last one, hanging out at bars or um, Mm -hmm. hanging around the wrong people. Um, So I decided to go down the education path. So while I was studying, I was blessed. Sorry, while I was playing professional football, I was blessed to be able to to study. So I went off and got various um, degrees and studies that you talked about earlier. Um, And I think the one of the big transition points or pivoting points for me was um, after playing in Australia, then to Singapore, back to Australia, to the UK, back to Australia. Um, I realized that soccer wasn't going to be with me forever. There is a finite time period on which you can be a professional soccer player. So I had to start to transition. And um, technology was something that I was really passionate about. I love computer games. I'd done some odd projects here and there for various companies in the technology space. Just love computers. Um, Spent a lot of time on computing. And um, so it was a natural course of transition for me that I went from, you know, being a soccer player, I started to gravitate towards my renewed or new, new interest in what was the technology space. And I love technology, but I love people more. Mm. I really love just working with people. So, you know, I just gravitated more towards that sales aspect and started out um, cold calling uh, for a IBM business partner in Australia um, in, in the sales game. Mm. Now, one question, I just was curious to back up just a little bit in journey, then we'll jump back to where you're at. 
when you were transitioning from soccer to getting the degrees, was that you're doing that while you were playing soccer and the degrees were more of a backup and you said, Hey, I'm going to be a professional. You're saying, Hey, while it'd be great to be a professional, I need to have something that I, you know, I can do as an alternative or as a backup or kind of what made you say, you know, if you have, I don't know the world of soccer very well. I, I watch it, but that's about it. Um, you know, but what made you decide to go for the degrees and then or, move, or shift away from soccer to go into more of the IT related businesses? Devin, you're going to ask the hard questions, aren't you? So th- this one, um, you know, plagued me for a while because when I was a teenager, whereas early teens, mid teens, late teens, I was always going to be a professional soccer player, um, you know, make it in England or in the Spanish league or in the Bundesliga in Germany and earn millions of dollars. Well, that didn't quite work out. Um, and um, it was, I think, in my 20s, uh, you know, I'd been in a situation where um, I'd made the Australian squad, the Australian squad. And, um, you know, I was very excited to play for Australia. Well, I never actually got to put on the Australian jersey. I never stepped foot mm. on the pitch um, with the Australian jersey. And, you know, just like business and, you know, whatever, whatever your interests are, um, if you go to a professional level, whether it's in the entertainment industry, business, arts, science, professional sports, you know, there are, and, there's, and there's money involved. There's always an element of politics as well. And so, um, and, and opinions. And unfortunately, I, I never got to step foot on the soccer pitch to play for Australia. So that was kind of a pivoting point for me. And it took me a little while to overcome that. Um, but that was when I was realized that, you know what, there, there's no guarantees that I'm ever going to play for Australia. There's no guarantees that I'm ever going to, uh, you know, play in the top flight for an English English Premier League team earning millions of dollars. And so it was a pretty tough period. I think about six or 12 months where I kind of had to digest that um, um, and kind of went in that journey into the, the technology and sales. So I kept playing football. I uh, was as what, what I'd call a semi-professional where you're earning, you know, $700, $800 a week. Uh, playing football and um, but then started playing uh, sorry then then moved into to technology sales which is you know a game in itself and I did start full-time there um, with HP Hewlett Packard they gave me an opportunity there um, so around that 27 28 year, year years of age mark HP wanted me to start traveling um, whether it's to Asia in the US and you can't you can't play semi-professional football, train three, four times a week, play a game on the weekend, and also travel um, in, the, in the world of technology sales or, or for mm-hmm. HP. And so I had some trips come up. I'd miss a couple of trainings. And at that level, you're not going to be able to just start um, on the weekend in the starting 11 for a football club. You know, they, they're, you're going to be on the bench. And I was, I was in this kind of tricky space and um, at 28 I decided you know what I think I need to to pursue my uh, my interest now in technology and, and the sales game and focus on HP it's a great company um, I can travel the world you know I've got this huge opportunity ahead of me and so that was um, yeah a bit of a painful but exciting mm. uh, journey as I close one chapter as a soccer player and open a new one in technology sales. 
No, it sounds like it was a, a good part of the journey and uh, definitely uh, makes sense uh, why you make that transition. So, so now you make the transition, say, okay, well, I love soccer and I'm, you know, it's, it's still a passion of yours, you know, on the business side and supporting yourself and looking towards the future side so to go down the HP route. And you did that for, I think, a period of several years, came to the U.S. for a period of time. Now, how did you kind of make the transition from HP over to um, the, uh, I think, the events, uh, events business, right? Yeah, so I founded, co-founded two technology business. One was the online events business. That was my first one. And the second one was a, a cybersecurity um, business tailored around the Oracle solution. So I think working for, you know, HP, HPE, I'd been through um, 11 acquisition and divestitures. Um, so a lot of M&A, a lot of machinery of business. It was all fantastic. I, I got to work in Asia and then they moved me over to the Americas in various regional and global leadership positions. Um, and, you know, I just have this enthusiasm for adventure. As I mentioned, I've lived in five different countries, traveled to over 61. And so I just started getting into the startup game, um, you know, working with various organizations in different capacities. And so it got to a point where I'd always wanted to do my own thing. And eventually I struck up the courage to go out there on my own, obviously with a, a co-founder or co two co-founders, actually. Um, we had this online events business and um, one of the founders, um, you know, their family uh, had a fair amount of capital that helped fund the business. Uh, I brought uh, to the partnership the technology background, the sales, the go-to-market, uh, helping with product market fit and things like that. So it was, you know, a really natural um, fit for us. And, um, yeah, as you mentioned earlier, sometimes in things, sometimes in life, things don't always turn out as planned. And so uh, it wasn't long, maybe a year or so after that, that um, I ended up in a, a tricky personal situation uh, where I was getting divorced. And um, sometimes those things aren't so great for business, especially early stage businesses. Mm. Now, one question, because that was, I think the divorce is one the cybersecurity. So what made you, or is that correct when you were doing or going through that divorce, um, you decided to exit, but when you got into, or what made you, was the, you had the online events business and then you had the cybersecurity. So I think he originally sold out of the, or the event online events business and got into, help me understand that transition. Yeah. So, so you are correct. Um, and at the time, um, you know, and, and obviously discussing personal things, it can be a little tricky. Sure. Um, but this is something in the past. And, um, you know, I think, Maybe this can help other people as you go through a separation, uh, a personal separation, if you're obviously engaged, married to someone. Um, but at the time, yeah, I was married and, and uh, my ex-wife, um, you know, lovely lady, um, but we had some tricky circumstances. And often, you know, in our personal lives, we have our business, we have other family, we have investments and various interests. And sometimes those things don't always work out. So in that first business, things didn't quite work out. And um, so we had to have a, an exit there, um, which you rightly pointed out, I was still you know, married at the time. Um, and then in the second situation, when I started this, this other business, the cybersecurity business, um, yeah, that was going really well. Um, and unfortunately, um, even though the business was going very well, um, it did get caught up in a, a very messy divorce situation 
Um, and uh, yeah, the, the choice was to exit uh, that, that activity and that business. And um, yeah, so unfortunately, sometimes divorce does prove terminal um, for some investments and, and businesses. No, and I, and I think that, you know, you hit on it. So it's a hard balance. I think when you get, I think everybody deals with it, but, you know, you get into a startup and a small business and it can occupy a lot of your time, a lot of your effort. It can, you know, and it, 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 and you have to, you know, figure out what that balance is. And some people are, you know, works out well with the relationships. So you can find that good balance and other times it can cause that, you know, the, the parting of ways and that. But I think that that is one where, you have to anticipate it or, or look for it. And, and, you know, even if it's not your fault, it can still have repli- or, you know, ripples into your personal life and business life aren't always easy to separate. So definitely makes sense. And uh, it can, uh, you know, other people have been there as well. So now you're coming out of, you know, did the online Which event. Just on that, Devin, I, want, I just oh, want to emphasize two points because you make two really good points there. One is the time and the second is the, the finances. And, um, you know, while financially we were doing great, um, when you've got this movement of money going around, um, you know, with, with business, you know, it can prove tricky because it is a roller coaster. Some months are great, other months not so great. And it can put, um, you know, some pressure um, on the finances. And the second is the time, which you make a really good point. You know, I was working really, really long days, um, you know, juggling various businesses and yeah, it can put a, a strain on things. Yep. And I, I think that's, you know, everybody deals with that and finds out. And you always think, you know, the ideal is you watch the movie or you read the book, the TV show, and it's like, oh, when they start their own business, they're going out to lunches all the time and they're taking vacations and they don't hardly work at all. And then you get into it and you're like, this isn't how business really works, unfortunately. Yeah. So, so 11 p.m.s, 1 a.m.s, 2 a.m. Exactly. And it never stops, never tires. And uh, everybody always, you always are trying to uh, re- or have somebody that needs something that you're dealing with. So, so now you've done that. You said, okay, you know, unfortunately that ends with divorce, your exit the business and you're looking to come out and do something, you know, coming off of that and doing something else. So then, yeah, I think you started into doing more of consulting for businesses and you wanted to come back to the U.S. Is that about right? I'm not, so I've been in the U.S. the whole time. I've been here okay. eight years, um, various trips, obviously back and forth from Australia um, to the U.S., um, but usually once, twice, maybe three times a year. Uh, but always well, I think it was businesses US. wanting to come into the U.S. Is that right? That's the consulting business? You got it. So uh, uh-huh. I started doing, I was approached by the Australian government, the Australian Trade and Investment Commission, and um, they asked if I wanted to be a mentor, an advisor um, to companies that wanted to land and expand here in the Americas, um, companies out of Australia. So, you know, these Australian companies, these CEOs, they've conquered Australia or New Zealand or various um, Asia Pacific region, and um, they want to land and expand here in the US. And despite Australia and America both speaking English, they are very different countries. And um, as you would know, US being one of the largest geographies, economies in the world, the East is very different to the West, the North to the South. And so um, it's a lot for for Australian CEOs and businesses to wrap their head around about just how different um, the Americas are or America is and so I started helping out there um, you know coaching advising various CEOs on how to land and expand here in the US Um, and then I had the Colorado government approach me around their um, um, around their advanced industries program which is a program that allocates funding usually about eight or nine million dollars a year 
um, to about 20 or 30 companies, Colorado companies that is, uh, that are in the advanced industry sectors, which might be technology, bio life sciences, aerospace, advanced engineering, manufacturing, um, and I've probably missed one or two there. Um, but very exciting program working once again with, with smaller um, earlier stage businesses, um, which is something I love to do. I love to create and build things. And so that's how I've, uh, you know, continue to, to work in this startup early stage business um, sector. No, and I think that, you know, that this sounds like a great opportunity. You know, it is interesting. You always think, well, if it's a different country, different language, you can say, okay, then there's obviously differences there. But even within, even if it's both English speaking, there's cultural differences, the way, you know, governments are set up, the way regulations work, the way that, you know, people engage and do different things. And so I think that, you know, it oftentimes presents a, a barrier, but also, as you found, an opportunity to be able to help people to navigate that and otherwise make entrances and, and work their way into that. And I think it sounds like it, it turned out to be a, a great opportunity for you. So now you've been doing that and I think you're still doing that. I mean, then you've also kind of gotten involved with a few of the businesses or the startups you're working with, sat on some boards and done a bit of investing. Is that right? Yeah. So uh, I'm, I'm advising to two CEOs at the moment. Um, one business there in the, the healthcare sector, clinical consulting. So they work very closely with pharmaceutical and medical device companies on helping commercialize and bring drugs and uh, medical devices to market. Uh, so working closely with the FDA. And the other business um, that I've recently signed up to, to become an advisor to is a CEO and founder out of Australia, um, originally from Pakistan. And uh, Pakistan is just exploding these days with um, technology startups and early stage businesses. Um, and also funding. Um, there's a very close alliance between the US and Pakistan when it comes to funding technology companies. And you're going to see, I think, Pakistan pop up a lot more um, on the mainstream radar as they continue to mature and grow. And so the business that they've created, well, the business that the CEO has created is um, online recruitment and career consulting. Um, he's hitting about 100,000 visitors a month now to his website. Uh, and that's growing at 90% CAGR uh, for the last five years. So pretty crazy growth. Um, he's on target to try and uh, hit 200,000 um, active users per month. Um, so yeah, really excited about this business as well because I love career growth, career journeys, helping people you know, take their next steps. No, that sounds like it's been, it'll be, it's an always fun. You're hitting on something that I always love, which is helping startups and small businesses. And that's always been a passion of mine, hence why um, focus a law firm on it. But I think that there, you know, it's just a fun place or place to play in and provides a lot of opportunities. You just get to work with a lot of cool people and a lot of cool businesses. So sounds like a fun place to be. So well, that was, we've uh, kind of gone through all your, gone through your journey, caught up to a bit where you're at today. Great time to transition to the two questions I always ask at the end of the podcast. And for the listeners, as a reminder, we're also doing the bonus question where we talk a little bit about uh, intellectual property after the episode. So if you want to hear that, make sure to stay tuned and listen to that. But before we get to the bonus question on the normal last two questions, first question is, is um, along your journey, what was the worst business decision you ever made and what'd you learn from it? So I'm going to answer that from two perspectives, one from like an angel investor and also the other from a founder perspective. So from an angel investor perspective, like we always think our concepts are amazing. And, you know, we, we, we come across an idea, a concept, and we think, oh, this is fantastic. It's going to change the world. Um, and so the worst 
decision I've made is probably putting too much money into some of these angel investment opportunities that I come across thinking they are going to be the next greatest thing. So let's take that and now flip it. And, you know, I'm on the founder side. And probably the, the biggest mistake that I've made is just really um, trying to understand uh, the complexity of bringing a concept and idea to market. Um, and so my advice there is that talk to as many people as you can. I think sometimes when you, when you start to develop your first idea or concept or your first couple, you're maybe a little bit scared um, to share it with people um, and to talk to people about it because you're worried, oh, they might go off and, and, um, and steal your idea, especially those that might be in that industry. Um, mm. But my advice is, is, you know, get out there, talk to as many people as you can, um, you know, with those conversations so that you can really flush out everything that you've got going on and, and you're not going in there with your blinders on thinking that this is going to be the next unicorn. Yeah, and I, I've yet to meet an inventor or an entrepreneur or a startup that didn't think they're going to be the next unicorn or the next billion dollar idea. And it does not matter what industry, it doesn't matter how big or small the idea. I think everybody has that sense. And some people do. They they certainly there are unicorns out there. And even if you're not a unicorn, you can get a successful business. But I think to your point is, you know, there's also plenty of times where if especially if you're anything like me, you have 10 ideas before you get into work, you have another 20 throughout the day and you probably have 10 before your head hits a pillow. And so you've got all these ideas and most of them are really bad ideas. And there are some that are good ideas within there, but you have to have a system in place Place to where you talk with people, you slow down the process, you vet those a bit more and you weed out those ideas that really are good ones that you're excited about from those that, you know, just kind of get you excited, but never really going to go anywhere. So I think that that is a great lesson to learn, uh, lesson to learn from the mistake made. So now hitting on the second question, which is if you're talking to somebody that's just getting into a startup or small business, what'd be the one piece of advice you'd give them? You got to, you, you probably hear this from everyone, uh, but you got to be passionate about it because you know, just touching on the funding cycle and the complexity of business is, let's say you're successful in getting, you know, angel round from your family and friends, you convince them, the people closest to you, that they should throw some money into your idea. And then you go on and you raise, let's say, a pre-seed or a seed round, which is, you know, starting to bring that concept to, to reality, you know, starting to get a working model, whether it's a product or maybe a go-to-market with a, a service or something of that nature, even then once you get some first customers and maybe some strategic partnerships or something of that nature, you then get to say series A, did you know that 50% of companies that raise series A never raise capital again? So if I just focus on that short period of a company, which you know could be a couple of years, there's an enormous amount of complexity. Uh, there's a lot of things that go wrong. There's a lot of things that have to go right. And so if you're not passionate about the problem that you're trying to solve and the solution that you bring into market to solve that problem, then you'll never make it to, to Series A. So hopefully that's a different way that maybe some of the other guests that have been on that may have talked about the passion element, uh, people can really visualize that and, and really understand the meaning of what I say about you have to be passionate about the topic. No, and I think that I think that's definitely a great piece of advice. And I'd add to that. I think that, you know, I always look at it as you have to have passion. You have to have something that people actually want to pay for is, is a desirable in the marketplace. In other words, you can be the most passionate about, you know, being or about soccer. And yet if you're not going to be a soccer player, 
then you know you may not it's you need to find a way to adapt that passion to the marketplace in other words you can be very passionate about something if there's only going to be five people are going to pay for it not the best business plan on the other hand you can find something that people are going to pay a ton of money for and you have zero passion for and you're not going to be able to stick it out and actually get the business going because there isn't anything to drive you so i think finding that mixture of passion that make or couples with something that is wanted in the marketplace then you have that that perfect scenario to where you're going to enjoy what you do and people are going to want to buy what you're selling yeah and just on that like talking about the soccer it's like i can be training the hardest i've ever trained putting in the most hours um, but at the end of the day it's the coach that decides whether i start come game time on the weekend and if i don't play i don't play and yep. it's kind of a little bit similar with business you can put all this effort into your concept creating something amazing feel like you put your blood sweat and your tears but if you can't commercialize it, you can't convince people to pay money for it then that unfortunately that concept you know, it's not, it's not necessarily worth anything or worth much. Yeah. And I think so. And I said, I think that that sometimes where people get a bit, uh, you know, forced through the trees, you know, or whatever place you want to say you want to use it. Sometimes it's that, well, I'm passionate about it. I'm really excited about it. I think it's cool. But you got to step back and make sure that it's a great opportunity in the marketplace that others are going to find it as exciting and cool as you are. And if they do, it's a great business. So Exactly. Well, as we wrap up, if people want to reach out to you, they want to find out more, they want to be a, a customer, they want to be a client, they want to be an employee, they want to be an investor, they want to be your next best friend, any or all of the above, what's the best way to reach out to you, contact you, find out more? LinkedIn would be the best place to find me. Uh, my email is greg at gregcollins.com. Uh, you'll be able to find me on LinkedIn via that email. All right. Well, I definitely encourage people to connect up with you on LinkedIn, reach out and uh, make sure to, to leverage all the knowledge and experience you have. So with that, we'll, we saw the bonus question coming up and as we wrap up the uh, normal, pod or, or normal podcast portion, um, thank you again for coming on. It's been a fun. It's been a pleasure. Now for all of you that are listeners, if you have your own journey to tell and you'd love to, or want to be a guest on the podcast, share your journey, we'd love to have you. Feel free to go to Inventive Guest. Uh, dot com and apply to be on the show a couple more things make sure to subscribe make sure to share because we want everybody to find out about our awesome episodes and last but not least if you ever need help with patents trademarks or anything else in the business go to strategymedia.com grab some time with us to chat so now with that now as we've wrapped up the portion of your journey which was a great journey and a fun one to hear uh, we always get to shift gears a bit for the bonus question which is talk just a little bit about intellectual property which is always a subject that's near and dear to my heart so with that uh throw out or throw the microphone over you so to speak uh, what's your uh, top intellectual property question yeah thanks Devin. i appreciate you having me on the show today i really appreciate it and i had a great time um i did touch on a topic uh you know in the show where i was talking about you know, flushing out your idea and your concept and sharing it with as many people as you can to get that feedback. So what would be, you know, your advice or perhaps some commentary around, let's say you've started to get a concept, maybe a working model, um, and you start to feel like there is some substance, there's something that could happen with this, um, but you know that you still need to get more market intel more feedback from people within the industry. What would be your advice around your intellectual property? Um, and let's say you don't have any patents, but you're starting to think, well, maybe I should patent this. Um, you know, what's your advice there to founders? No, I think that's a, certainly a fair question. One that, you know, comes up with a lot of founders and people that are wanting to get a business going or have a great idea and they're saying, what's the next step? And, you know, 
first of all, I'll give you the standard lawyer answer, which is always it depends. But now I'll give you the real answer, um, which is, you know, it does depend, but I think there are a few guidelines. You know, it, first of all, it depends on where you're at within your budget. In other words, if you have the budget to, you know, within your business and you're coming off of an exit or you're looking to set up or you have a bit of investor dollars, getting it a bit earlier on, getting a patent earlier on or a trademark if it's a brand business or something that is always easier. And, you know, it's always worthwhile as an investment. Now, the question is also if you don't have that budget or what, you know, let's say, as a startup, most of the time you have more things to spend money on than money to spend. And so you're always trying to balance where to, the, where to allocate that money. And so it's, it's always a bit of a, a, a risk tolerance or risk reward type of a thing. In other words, when you have an idea, there are two reasons why you get a, a particular patent, but why you protect your intellectual property. One is for defensive. In other words, you're saying, hey, if I'm going to put all this blood, sweat and tears, this money and effort to get a business up and going, I don't really want someone to come along and copy it. You know, the magic trick is always easier once you know how it's done. Same thing with business or, you know, with an invention or a product. Once somebody can see how you've created it, it's a lot easier to, to replicate it. So that one's kind of one where you're going to say, OK, I want to have defensive purpose. And I also want to have a lot of times it can work as an asset. So it can be investable. It can give you something that's proprietary that investors or other people can come in and actually have an asset they're investing in the business. So there's motivations to get a patent. Now that's offset with, is it worthwhile right now to invest or do I have the money to invest or when should I invest? And coupled in all that, and I'll give you my answer is also, you have to look at the, the landscape of the business as you're in. Is it a competitive landscape where a lot of people are working to solve or try and solve the same problem? Or is it one where there's not a lot of competition, there's not a lot of innovation going on and you can wait? Because if it's one that's really competitive, a lot of people are thinking on it, a lot of people are working on it, you're probably going to want to protect it earlier on. If it's one where it's less, you know, less competitive, less innovation going on, you can push that line or that down the, the path a bit. So now with all that as a background, you know, what is my rule of thumb? Usually I would say, you know, if you're getting to the point in the business, and this can be different for everyone, to where you're building it to the point of if somebody were to come along and they're to copy your brand, or if somebody were to come along and they're to copy your invention or copy your, you know, your materials with your copyright and whatnot. If you're at that point where it's going to be an ouch factor, in other words, you're going to step back and say, well, if they copy that, this is going to hurt the business. It's going to, you know, provide it, it. We're not going to be able to continue. We're going to have less sales. It's going to otherwise be harmful to the business. You're reaching the point where you should probably invest in it. But on the other hand, say, no, if they come along and if they copy our product or they copy our brand, we can pivot, we can adjust. It's really not that much invested or it's not going to be that harmful. Then I would push that ball down the road. So that's probably the best rule of thumb I can get because it is a hard one where you're always balancing where to invest the dollars. And there isn't an easy or right answer because every business is different. Every funding is different. But that's kind of at least a, a few guidelines to get. So with that. If you have any other questions or any of the other listeners have any other questions that come up, I always love to talk about intellectual property and, uh, and small businesses and startups in general. So feel free to go to strategymeeting.com, grab some time with us to chat. We'll go ahead and wrap up the episode from there. Appreciate coming on, Greg. It's been fun. It's been a pleasure. Wish the next leg of your journey even better than the last. Thanks so much, Dev. And I really appreciate you having me on the show today. 